0: Hi and welcome to Global Governance Futures, based out of the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favourite books, other resources, listen to past shows and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance we're really delighted to have robin eckersley join us today robin is professor of political science at the university of melbourne where she specializes in environmental governance politics political theory and international relations alongside a handful of other scholars in the early 1990s robin was one of the earliest pioneers of what became green political theory It seems extraordinary now to think that environmental limits was rarely part of the conversation in mainstream academic IR back in in, in the 90s. And Robin is the author of many books and articles. Her first major book titled Environmentalism and Political Theory was published in 1992 and made a bold case for an ecocentric political standpoint uh, to address the environmental crisis. Obviously that crisis has only accelerated since then and Robin has remained at the cutting edge of environmental philosophy and perhaps unusually in the field has also waded into concrete policy debates, engaging on strategies to change real life climate politics, placing particular emphasis on the importance of ethics and in the words of Henry Hsu, the unavoidability of justice. In her 2004 book, The Green State, Robin lays out a critical political ecology as a paradigm to foster a green democratic state. And this line of inquiry continues in her most recent article published last year, Greening States and Societies. And perhaps reflecting the trials and tribulations Uh, Well, mainly trials of interstate environmental politics over the past decades, Robin returns to the question of how we can galvanize the green transformation when states and the political and market elites who hold sway seem to uh, be ill-disposed towards such a transformative project. So lots to explore. Uh, Thanks so much, Robin, for making the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today.
1: It's a pleasure, Tom. I'm looking forward to our
0: discussion. And before we dive in, I'll just invite my co-host to introduce herself.
2: Hi, I'm Zoe. I help out with some of the research and the social media aspects.
0: Okay, so uh, yes, let's dive in. Perhaps we could begin by setting the scene. As someone who has followed the UN FCCC negotiations since their inception and has seen targets and goals come and go uh, with 1.5 degrees now looking increasingly out of reach. What is your situational assessment of where we are right now in terms of the gravity of the climate science and political pathways towards the rapid far-reaching and unprecedented changes, which which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change considers vital to averting catastrophic climate change?
1: Well, I'll give two answers to this question, depending on the yardstick. If we're talking from, in terms of distance from the collective optimum, we're, we're in a bad way. We're way behind where we need to be. But if we're talking uh, in terms of um, Are we better off now um, in terms of the counterfactual of no agreement in Paris? We're way better off. So from a diplomatic point of view, there've been some significant achievements, but as we know in diplomatic conferences, they can only ever be successful or very successful. And um, in diplomatic language, that doesn't mean much in terms of concrete outcomes. It's great that 1.5 degrees has taken over two degrees. And that's thanks to some fantastic diplomacy By the High Ambition Coalition at Paris. Um, This was the brainchild of the late Foreign Minister of the Marshall Islands, Tony de Broome. He he had the moral authority and he got together with the EU that had the diplomatic capacity and built an alliance that crossed the big divide between developed and developing countries in the negotiations. And they weren't a negotiating uh, coalition, but they just came up with these big, bold claims. And they emerged halfway through the two weeks. They got the US on board and then That was kind of the quid pro quo for the really flexible bottom-up approach. It left the vulnerable countries um, kind of stranded. So they said, if this doesn't go in, we will not sign. So it was a kind of grand bargain that gives the world um, a kind of goalpost 1.5. So I think that's a huge achievement because most people are really cynical about the negotiations and it's true that vulnerable states don't always get what they want, but it shows how they sometimes can, and it's the ver- it shows the virtues of large and multilateralism rather than climate clubs amongst the rich. So I think 1.5 is the singular, the, the signature achievement of Paris and the fact that there was an agreement. Everything else was dodging and working around, um, improvising around disagreement. So that's my two pronged answer. What I'm more worried about is the fixation with net zero by 2050. I think net zero is problem because it, we're talking about sources and sinks when we should be focusing on reducing emissions starting with fossil fuels as fast as we possibly can as soon as we possibly can we can't even get our government to commit to net zero uh, but even if they did i wouldn't wish to congratulate them because it's too far off so that the shift to net zero is a really interesting one and it's um it's got some real traps in it i could say more about that but that's my kind of intro to where I think the international community is going. Because as we we point towards Glasgow uh, at the end of this year with COP26, it's all about galvanizing ambition, not just with mitigation, but climate finance. There's tons of other things on the agenda, but they're the really big issues. And net zero has become one of the big rallying points. I wish it was uh, more ambitious targets for 2030. I wish that was given more priority.
0: Yeah, so we've been following the debates on net zero Karma capture geoengineering and perhaps we'll, we'll get into that um, now. Uh, So, I mean, many, many, I mean, I've been involved in some workshops recently on climate change. We've been running a major project on climate governance here at UCL and sometimes, yes, the, the, the questions that one receives suggest that many regard climate change as principally a sort of technical scientific problem. I think this is exemplified perhaps by some of those debates in that space around the sort of the the climate technical fix discussion. So I'd be curious to ask, from your point of view, why must we also consider climate change to be a fundamentally political and ethical problem? And why is that aspect of the debate often marginalized or sort of Glossed over, shall we say, sometimes in the mainstream policy debate arenas.
1: It's a good question. Uh, in some ways, there are two layers of technical complexity. There's the science, and then there's the policy instruments, which uh, have been led by economists. You know that the, the crafting of policy instruments have been led by economists. It's all been around different forms of carbon trading or carbon um, trading or markets and so forth. Now, not against them per se, but the prominence of those two debates has, to- as, as you've sort of intimated, totally put to one side the deeper moral and political problem that there are structural injustices, uh, that there are, there's a systematic production of harm and it's concentrated in certain places and it's, uh, there's no responsibility being taken for that. And way back in 1992, when the parties signed the UNFCCC, Fossil fuels was only mentioned twice in the whole treaty. And that's in the provisions relating to response measures put in there by OPEC and other oil exporting countries to protect them against the adverse effects of other countries' carbon uh, climate policies. So the elephant in the room was just totally ignored back then. And it was only after Copenhagen that you you saw the idea of fossil fuels in the ground and the idea of a carbon budget. But it's a, a fundamental, question of justice, as you say, as Henry Hsu says, the indispensability of justice, there is systematic forms of harm being perpetrated, perpetrated by organizations that don't have a soul to damn or a body to burn because they're legal fictions that are that they're getting away with, that, that they're in denial and, and they're perpetuating. This is, a, this is hugely problematic, hugely problematic. I mean, just think of the thought experiment. If the harms that were generated by the directors of those corporations if we could somehow concentrate them, quarantine them and beam them back directly on them and their families in their life today, they wouldn't do it. But they're willfully doing this through time and space and and hiding behind the complexity and the social distancing that goes with that. So I think that um, that is the key issue. And I think publics in climate change narratives, it's better to focus on the problem. What happens if we don't act? Where does the responsibility lie and what we need to do uh, is secondary to agreeing the problem and agreeing it it is a problem and that we can identify what the biggest sources of this problem are. And save the question of policy instruments as a secondary debate. In Australia, we've had a toxic debate now for over a decade uh, and close to for many, one and a half decades. And the whole debate was carbon tax or not, there were no goals, no debates about our actual targets. Um, there was a huge backlash by our heavily entrenched fossil fuel industry. It was, it was an exercise in um, rent seeking and agency capture 101. And yet um, the big moral problems just disappeared from the public airways because we have a Murdoch dominated press. So it's, it's a corruption problem as much as anything.
0: I mean, it seems as if, I mean, reviewing sort of the history of climate change negotiations, one is sometimes struck by uh, the, this idea that climate change is something which is really out there in the future. Uh, whereas I think now what we're encountering is in the words of William Gibson, the, the science fiction writer, you know, climate change, with climate change, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And we're, we're experiencing now quite serious climate impacts uh, in vulnerable countries but also often in places where people don't live, like the Arctic Circle. And yet we're in a situation where emissions have not yet peaked. Um, the energy transition, which was hoped for over the past decade, did not, did not uh, happen. We may indeed cross 1.5 degrees in the next decade. And um, the focus is now on net zero. And there is, I think, a risk that net zero could be used to essentially postpone the radical action which the IPCC regards as vital this decade by 2030. And how, how, how do you break out of this kind of inertia? Um, how, what, what, what must we do differently?
1: Well, as you say, um, climate change is not in the future, it's here and we experienced it hugely. Um, the summer before last with what we call the Black Summer Fires, where most of the continent was ablaze, where the major cities like Sydney and Melbourne were blanketed in a very toxic smoke where you couldn't actually go outdoors. Um, and um, a, lot, a huge amount of wildlife was destroyed along with a huge amount of forests and many people lost their homes. And it was right across the continent. And if you see um, satellite photos of Australia burning then, it was quite shocking. And I thought this would change everything. And certainly the polls at the time showed that everyone was pretty galvanized because you're either involved or you knew someone who was, it was pretty hard to escape. And yet COVID came along and the issue attention cycle just shifted. And um, it was quite shocking to see people forget. We've just had a change of our deputy prime minister um, today. And uh, so one climate denier uh, replaced by another to The whole part of the debate is to prevent the Morrison government from accepting net zero. They're the coalition partners. I'm thinking, how can this happen? I'm involved in a book which we're doing on the fires and it's called the fires next time. So we're raking over the coals literally to see what happened both from the learnings from disaster management through to adaptation and mitigation policy. And it's been really sobering experience and quite depressing, but also very heartwarming at the community level. depressing at the national level.
0: I mean I know that you've emphasized you know for many years the the key issue of redistributive justice within the climate negotiations and we've again experienced with the recent G7 meeting the reluctance of major countries to actually um, cough up the the, the the serious amounts of money, but not, not trillions of dollars, but serious amounts of money that uh, that many regard as, as vital to accelerating the green transition in the, uh, the global south. I know, you know, you've, you've written and spoken before on how really countries like China, like India, uh, they do have legitimate aspirations for a, a better life. And... Uh, and there needs to be some reckoning with the historical legacy of the major emitters since, obviously, the, the industrial revolution. Um, so, how do we how, what, how do we square that circle? I mean, how how why has it been so problematic um, to actually deal with the redistributive justice question? Why is there this such a strong reluctance to to actually engage with historical legacy? This kind of Amnesia when people walk into these negotiating um settings.
1: Yeah, that's one of the um accepting historical responsibility has been the hardest thing for um OECD countries to accept. And um it's certainly been a big argument of um China and India and in the Paris negotiations, they strangely though form part of a group called the like-minded group of developing countries and um Unfortunately, they they played a blocking role and there was actually a lot of bad faith there. I mean, my heart goes out more to the alliance of small island states and many African countries and very poor countries, but India and China have a huge middle class. The Chinese middle class is bigger than all of America's consumers. And there's a Germany living in India consuming at the same level. So they've always hid behind their poor. And whilst it's, it's perfectly appropriate for us to acknowledge the unmet development needs in both countries, but especially India. I think it's problematic not to acknowledge the huge middle-class emissions that are also happening in those countries, including all the members of the Chinese Communist Party who breathe clear air in their airlocked towers. So I think there's bad faith on both sides, I guess is the point I'm trying to make. And the goalposts do keep shifting. I think the norms and the principles hold, but China's historical responsibility is now climbing up there, and its per capita emissions are equal to that of the EU on average. So, those debates that really had a pointy moral force in the 90s and early 2000s have really changed. And so, that was the US's argument. You know, Todd Stern, the chief envoy, he was pushing that the rigid understanding of differentiated responsibility. But on the other hand they wouldn't fully acknowledge how they you know developed on the back of fossil fuels and you know they can't keep the ladder down and that's an absolutely strong argument but now china has to wear that one too so uh, i think it's a complicated debate i think um, the question of where when you start attributing responsibility is it from the beginning of your historical emissions and go for the Um, beneficiary pays principle, or from the time you really should have known, and go for the polluter pays principle, or simply say the politics is too difficult, let's just go on the ability to pay argument. Because there are lots of parties who can kick in money for climate finance, who aren't that responsible, but they're filthy rich, and we could sure do with their money in the Green Climate Fund, like the Swiss, you know, um, who've lived on hydroelectricity and have a lot of money. We want their money too. So there's no single principle, that will solve all the ragged edges of these moral debates. So one has to take, I think, a more pragmatic political approach that will give us the capability to go forward, knowing that those that have the biggest historical responsibility usually, but don't always have that capability because there's a lot of uh, oil rich countries that aren't OECD countries that have a lot of unmet development needs. That's because the money's uh, sequestered by an elite. So, they've got a measure of historical responsibility but we don't want to punish their citizens. So it's actually a very complex moral terrain and there's a point at which you uh, you haven't a need a more forward-looking approach. You can't not look backward but if you actually want to fix the problem and build the capability to uh, build the capacity of developing countries so we do not kick the ladder down, that has to be the golden rule, do not kick the ladder down, then a forward-looking approach I think may be more Um, get more traction. And that's why the Green Climate Fund is so important. But I think also partnerships, you know, um, cities adopting cities, countries working with neighbours, all sorts of partnerships, particularly around energy, which is crucial. The other thing is that China, um, China's the biggest um, financier of overseas fossil fuel development projects, under its Belt and Road uh, projects. So you know, it's uh, it's got coal on its hands, as it were, <laughs> the equivalent of blood, and I think there's a, and they're still building new coal stations. They've closed down the dirty ones, but they're building new supercritical ones because they have a problem with the provinces and, 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 and employment, just like we do in Australia. So why not get together and say we've got a, a joint problem here? We need to provide workers in the provinces and regions and dependent communities with a future. How can we collectively solve this problem? That seems to me. A productive way to think about it, rather than blaming these provinces by drawing on their main, their traditional forms of employment.
0: As you say, it's, it does seem to be a, it's a very complex moral problem to wade into, but also a crucial one. And I really appreciate you pulling it pulling it apart there. Uh, it's helpful. I mean, I I guess. Um, One strong argument as to why we need to address the question of justice and fairness is that many argue that climate change will increasingly undermine the capacity of states, including those states that that are powerful, that have large GDPs to govern and even to survive. And there is the risk that we're going to move towards escalating conflict pathways exacerbated by the by climate impacts. So these countries, all countries, shall we say, do seem to have a good reason to take climate change seriously. And Of course, many are, but I wonder whether the direction of travel is is positive. Uh, And you've done a lot of work on sort of the the green democratic state, the potential for an eco state. I mean, here in the UK, we've seen the the UK government recently unveil uh, a 16.5 billion surge in defence spending and global military spending tops two trillion dollars a year. Uh, I was also surprised to find that apparently the Kyoto Protocol exempted governments from having to report their military emissions. And I was just wondering, you know, do you think it's time that we really started talking about military spending when discussing climate justice?
1: Yep, I think we can talk about a carbon bootprint, which is what the military <laughs> let's call that the military bootprint. And the US, with the only the only country with global military reach and bases in every continent has the biggest carbon blueprint in the world. I guess, uh, let me wind the discussion back a little bit. What what astounds me about the, the world of international relations, which is one of the worlds I work in, is how you ask anyone at any conference, what's the biggest risks? And they all say climate change, but it's not making one dent of a difference to international relations theory and how we think the national, how we think of sovereignty. And that's percolating through, I mean, militaries grew up around the idea of territorial defense, um, defending um, territorial, sovereign territorial space. But we're gonna see the boundaries of states change. We're gonna see some states sink and we're gonna see a lot of states shrink from problems that militaries can't deal with. And so the parameters on which our strategic decisions are made internationally are no longer the the past is no longer a safe guide to how we should think strategically in the future if ever a zero-sum approach was daft it's now it's absolutely now um i mean there's really interesting legal questions like if you have a sink a sunken state in pacific Islands and you could erect something get some norwegian Norwegian oil platform technology and built something there because you still have access to your um, uh, territorial sea and exclusive economic zone, at least your exclusive economic zone if you've still got some structure there that you build above water and do at various places. So there's a, we have to rewrite the international law of the sea, for example, how you draw boundaries around states. But that's just one little interesting but not as important question as, as the role of the military in a climate change world. Uh, once upon a time when, you know, people like John Barnett were writing critically about the uh, the conflict climate nexus, I totally agreed with his argument back then, but not anymore, not anymore. There is a point where things can get so desperate where you, can expe- you can't expect our better selves to come to the fore, when you've got scarcity of food, for example, and this ties back to a point of 1.5 degrees and net zero, and this might seem an odd segue right now, but the modelling in the IPC's um, 1.5 degree report assumed a huge amount of negative emissions from BECS in the second half of this century, using an obscene amount of land. And if that were all put in place, we wouldn't have enough land to grow food and uh, the amount of food we have now. So food prices would go through the roof and that's the best thing to set off a revolution. French Revolution and the Arab Spring started in Tunisia. So. Those linkages now, I'm convinced that that's that's now something we should really worry about. That we, so that's why net zero is dangerous because they're looking at sources and sinks rather than just reducing from sources as fast as we can in the next decade. Treat this as a critical decade. But back to the military. That said, the military are way ahead of the politicians (laughs) in taking this seriously. But the means they have to actually get to the root of the problem are limited. Their role is more about adaptation defense, not, um, I mean, they can, like the Department of Defense in America has gone green. You know, they're now drawing on renewable energy. They've got better battlefield readiness because of new technologies. Their bases are threatened. They have to think of this. There's a whole lot of reasons why they may be generating new technologies that could help us in peacetime. But at the end of the day, they can't get other countries to reduce emissions unless they start taking out coal-fired plants around the world, bombing the bejesus out of them. You know, if things get really desperate that would be, if we got to that point, we're in really serious trouble. So clearly we have to go back to, to multilateral diplomacy and non-state action, trying to work together in unison to beat this problem before we get to those points. We, adaptation's unavoidable, but I hope it's adaptation in terms of how we produce and consume and move rather than um, adaptation in warfare or adaptation in disaster risk management. At that extreme end, for sudden onset events. So there's a huge amount to think about on that particular canvas. Um, but I think the the broader climate change is going to affect everything. It's going to affect the new industries that develop, the old industries that go, the forms of employment and work, our health. Just you name it, climate change is going to affect it. And yet. The planners of today, I mean, think of state budgets. No one's factoring into budget forecasts, the cost of climate change damage. It's going to compete with social welfare expenditure. It's going to compete with all sorts of things, like the cost of the Black Summer fires and recent Queensland floods. Uh, In years past, they put a special levy on. But these insurance contracts are being rewritten, so they're uninsurable. The state is the provider of last resort. Where's the money coming from? We don't have any super fund for these sorts of things and that is another climate finance challenge we need a global super fund to help the global south and then national super funds to supplement what the insurance industry will no longer do because it's it's a toxic market it's a market that won't pay and the reinsurers won't reinsure so these are huge questions that um it makes us think we can't just think in terms of relations between states anymore that's that's kind of layered into a a global set of problems that everyone's going to be affected by. Sorry, that was that answer was way too long.
0: <laughs> no, that that was great. That's what we do here. Just yeah, that was a great riff, uh, and totally take the point on the importance of thinking very carefully about the implications of ecological interdependency for how we theorize sovereignty, how we understand the role of the nation state. Uh, we've been grappling on the podcast with. Complexity science. Uh, and certainly one of the, the motifs that comes up very often is that the past is no longer a good guide uh, for mm-hmm. the future. Uh, some are even arguing that we need to reinvent the military as a global engineering corps, that we could deploy them to refreeze the Arctic or whatever else uh, <laughs> might be required, but we need much more radical visions as to as to what might be the role of the, uh, the state infrastructure, the security infrastructure in this new context and world. Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay, so I know Zoe has a question. So Zoe, please. Zoe.
2: <laughs> so as you speak, I'm really struck by how you're very um, aware of all the real world stuff that needs to happen, but still being very um, critical and, and seeing it from a more theoretical perspective. And um, you described yourself as a critical non-ideal theorist. Um, and I was wondering if you could break that down a little more and unpick what that really means for you. And I guess in hearing you speak, it's really impressive. I'm trying to like keep up and process everything. Um, How do you hold the two in balance and how do you manage to maintain that critical aspect and have that clarity of where the real world um, policies need to change and what needs influencing and changing there?
1: Well, I think I love moving between political theory and um, real world. Messy politics. I find political theory inspiring because it can deepen our interpretation of what's happening, and um, being critical is absolutely important because um, we need systemic change. On the other hand, um, what I don't, the the difference between ideal and non ideal theory is that ideal theory uh, does not concern itself with the challenges of application. non-ideal theory if it's making insofar as it's making action guiding prescriptions tries to consider prescriptions where you can identify agents social agents with the necessary motivation and capacity to be able to do these things if they're not there you're kind of wasting your time we're not wasting your time it's an interesting exercise but it's not going to get any real world traction and in that article that you mentioned tom i have always loved Robert Cox's work, but the division between critical theory and problem-solving has always bothered me because we need a praxeology, as, as Andrew Linklater would have put it. Um, some way to, to not, be paint, not paint ourselves into a corner. It's a bit like all the debates about intersectionality at the moment. Um, if we try and do everything all at once, it's just not possible. We have to hold things, some things provisionally, uh, so we can concentrate on those things where we've identified the opportunity to have some traction that will point us in a more transformatory direction. So if critical theorists don't do problem solving because that's kind of like um, beneath them because you're going to be somehow supporting the status quo, then critical problem solving is finding the next best next best strategy or policy with the most transformative potential in the hope that you then work on those other things. Like if you think of the terrible statistics about Indigenous folk in Australia, um, incarceration, health, education, what have you, the more you look at it, it's a problem that is overdetermined. There's so many things bearing on that. You can say, obviously, the colonial legacy, but with that come a whole lot of things. So, where do you start? You can't do all these things at once. Is it best to start with early childhood education? Is it best to start with the health? Is it best to start with employment for, for parents? And which would Maybe start with two that can then start conspiring in a positive way to help address the others. Because doing them all at once fully and well is politically impossible with scarce resources. So finding that entry point in so you can start to deal with those layers of structural injustice is the kind of immediate challenge. But that requires a conjunctural analysis where you identify those sites. And as I said, it's done best as a collective brain or an individual brain. Um, like-minded folk who want transformation can think this together but then start building coalitions with maybe not quite so like-minded but not on the opposite side of the spectrum where it can become and that's where the pragmatism has to come in because there's a point where politics has to get kind of simple um things are always complex but they have to be made simple they have to be communicated and there's a point at which you have to build alliances where you check some of your values at the door before you fully enter, because you won't be able to get on, but you need to build that because that's the only way you get change. That's how change happens. Uh, showing solidarity with others, but then building a movement to make those changes. So I've always got one eye on that. Otherwise I kind of think, what's the point? In the end, what is to be done? That is the question we have to ask ourselves.
2: Yeah, and sort of following on from that a little bit and going a bit further into it, have you ever had a moment in particular where you felt that you had to change your critical theory point of view when faced with the real world application challenges or has it been more of a gradual um, adapting and I guess mixing and matching is perhaps the wrong term but sort of going back and forth in a way?
1: Well, that's a really good question. The one place where I was probably challenged was to try and get over my deep aversion to nationalism. Um, and that is to recognize the virtues of tight bonds for a healthier democracy. And also because of its enabling power. But I, <laughs> I grappled with that by trying to develop a cosmopolitan nationalism, which sounds oxymorani- ox- like an oxymoron. But I say this because there's some interesting books out at the moment, um, one by Anatoly Levin, who tries to make the case that the only way we can get citizens to make sacrifices, because we need to make sacrifices, is to draw on nationalism and to build bonds and almost build a kind of welfare state with strong bonds. I have some problems with his argument, but whereas a decade ago, I would have scoffed at that, I'm sort of thinking, you know, you can, we've seen the power of populism. We know not all populism is bad, And we know that um, there's a lot of folk that feel left behind and then you get this antagonism about against elites who may be thinking of good like Fabian public policy, but they hate their guts and anything that comes out of their mouth, they will not listen to. Not because of what they're saying, but because of who they are. And try to think about, as someone who grew up in a conservative rural community, um, I can talk to farmers. (laughs) Who are skeptical about climate climate change, but but understand that the climate's changing nonetheless. And it's really important to 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 mix with other people and not stay in the citadel of the university or not stay within your suburb with the good cafe, coffee or whatever. You need, it's good to kind of mix around and mix it up and hopefully have your kids mix it up a little bit because I think that's, this, these divisions are really, really unhelpful generally, but they're particularly toxic for trying to get collective action on climate change. So that's probably the, the area where I've, I've had to kind of initially hold my nose a little bit, but then think about, um, it's not good, bad ethnic nationalism, good civic nationalism, which I used to think was the binary, but there's actually problems on both sides of each fences and to try, just walk into the minefield knowing that amongst the minds, there's also some really solid ground to stand where good stuff can happen and just be a little bit more open-minded. So that's probably where I've been challenged the most.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very live debate right now. The question of how do we actually perhaps rise above the the polarized culture wars, and of course, work by people like Jonathan Heights and others that are trying to sort of dig down underneath these kinds of quite the sort of reductionist binaries of left and right. And, and to try and get some understanding of what healthy tribalism <laughs> might actually might actually look like. Um, in terms of, of sort of critical theory, and particularly, say, putting that in a historical context, I'd like to invite you, Robin, to cast your mind back. Uh, one of the things we've been enjoying doing on this podcast is excavating debates from earlier times, and we were lucky enough to have the political scientist uh, William Ophels, uh, Patrick O'Falls, uh, William O'Falls is his pen name on, on the podcast, who's obviously been present in these debates for decades now, since the early 1970s. And he he argues that political struggle must now urgently focus on making ecology the master science and Gaia the key metaphor of our age. and Obviously, this is kind of a, a provocation. But as someone who was really at the forefront of green political theory in the 90s, I was curious to ask, what was the state of the field back then? Particularly, I mean, how did you navigate sort of between political theory and theories around deep ecology? What did you take from what I understand were very sort of vigorous, quite contested deep ecology debates in the late 1980s, as you developed your own theories?
1: Well, well, William O'Falls, I mean, there were a very few, small number of books that I can put in a cardboard box on this topic, and most of them were from scientists, so it was nice to find a political scientist writing in the space. And I'd read his little essay called, I forget the main title, it was Leviathan or Oblivion. And now we've got um, a book on Climate Leviathan that's come out in 2018, so he was prescient, I guess. But he he kind of took almost... Uh, Plato approach where you needed like the technical the, the expert at the helm and I found that troubling because of my attachment to democracy although I understood and sympathised with what he was wishing to do um, it's funny because I often in my early teaching I often draw the contrast between ecological science and medical science you know when doctors train they, uh, and graduate they take the Hippocratic Oath and even researchers, you know, their, their purpose is to save lives. It's a moral purpose, right? But no one says you're infecting your science with norms. You should be value free as a scientist. It's uh, medical science is deeply purposive. It's designed to reduce suffering and to save human lives. And that's a really worthy purpose that few people would disagree with. So they did not see the problem with it. But if you had people uh graduating with ecological science saying I'm taking an earth oath they'd say maybe not so much nowadays but back back in the day you're crazy you know, um, it's just that those values aren't deeply held that's the difference and so it's interesting the word ecology has escaped the sciences it's become the ecology of this or this eco the, the idea of an ecosystem is um, let out of the ecological sciences, and we see it all over the time. You know, the ecosystem of my office—it's, you know, there's animals over in that corner and whatever. So there's, um, it's become part of the zeitgeist, part of popular culture, and that's good and bad. Uh, you know, because we know the whole question of balance is being brought into debate here. So I guess I don't know whether you want me to respond to the idea of Gaia or whether you want me to talk more about the yeah, it was about deep ecology. There, were a lot of, there was a lot of sort of, not internecine warfare, but certainly vigorous debates between deep ecologists and eco-feminists. And it just reminds me of, you know, the Judeal, Judean Liberation Front, fighting the Liberation Front of Judea and forgetting about the Romans. Um, and it was a bit like that for a while, but out of that, those debates, some really new thinking came through. And I wanted to bring that into political science in the way that feminists looked at some of the canons and tried to say, well, you've got this patriarchal framework that's implicit that you're just not questioning, I wanted wanted to expose it. But it was hard work and I actually was um, rebuffed a lot and um, almost to the point of humiliation sometimes in presenting as a young PhD student. And so I had to really hone my arguments about what was problematic about anthropocentrism. And there was a sense, yes, there was a sense in which we can never be but, Human-centered because we perceive the world through a human sensory apparatus, but we can, um, just like men don't have to be sexist, they can acknowledge there's something different about being a woman, but we're all human. Um, we could extend that kind of thinking to the non-human world. And I developed a whole lot of systematic arguments to try and point out why this was a problem. It's something we hadn't thought, out, thought enough about. It wasn't that people were evil. This was just something that was saturated in our Western culture. So what I've found today, jumping forward, is that in the academy now, this is with the rise of posthumanism and new materialism and philosophy and ecological humanities, everyone just agrees with it. No one actually makes the case anymore. It's enough to say that's anthropocentric and everyone goes, oh, yeah, that's bad. Whereas back then, I was just, had rotten tomatoes thrown at me. And at one level, I'm really pleased that we've got to that point, but it's not happening beyond the academies. It's like in the in the humanities and social sciences, That's everyone's sort of percolated there. And I'm not saying I'm responsible because I stood on the shoulders of others. And there are many more people working in this area. But those of us who were working back then, particularly bringing into politics, that was hard work. Not anymore. Um, so I think that's a good thing. But how one deals with that politically is tricky. At the moment, um, if you think of the rise of um, you know, the school strikes, Fridays for Future and, and Extinction Rebellion, um, Extinction Rebellion, is, is that's a big global movement now concerned about extinction. So this is a, a biocentric, if not ecocentric uh, social movement, but it's also saying we need to solve the climate problem if we're going to stop extinction and this is an emergency. So I, my big project that I'm starting up now is on the climate emergency frame and the movement itself and its relationship to democracy. So that's my next big project. So I think that it's having an impact uh, in society, uh, socially it's just not something that you'd ever hear a politician say unless it's um, a Green Party person um, and then they'll be um, They'll probably be accused of being misanthropic, and that that can be expected, and we'll see it all the time, you know, jobs versus trees and so forth. So I actually think it has moved beyond the academy now. It certainly it was always there in the environment movement. You know, many movements set up to, like the Australian Conservation Foundation, set up to protect Australia's flora and fauna, right? Or um, Forest and Bird, the New Zealand, the main organisation, and there's lots of more around the world, um, all of which have absorbed the critique of wilderness. On all those problems, and that's why biodiversity is used, not wilderness anymore. So there's been a whole series of changes. Uh, it's just not percolating through to government. Uh, you know, then you have that's another whole story as to why that's the case. So it was hard work, <laughs> um, but it's um, and it still is hard work uh, in terms of public policy for sure. But how to protect biodiversity is is a really puzzling and challenging problem now in the Anthropocene, because there's no past we can go back to. There's no golden age that's the ideal distribution and abundance of species anymore. So in many ways, we've had the rug pulled out from under us. And so the protect, the decision between wild and domestic, um, whilst it's not a problem for conservation biologists, for some uh, posthumous or new materialists, you know, um, A fox or a rabbit is no different to, um, you know, uh, a a potteroo in Australia, whereas we know there's fox and rabbits everywhere, but they're unique here and they're threatened, you know, they could become threatened. So there are some really interesting, um, still moral issues that we have to work out. Well, why why is that a problem that we should, we have to do a triage here, right? And that's why I don't accept the um, extension of a liberal moral ontology um, onto the non-domesticated, non-human world. We should think of populations and aggregations, because that's that—that's just not ecological thinking, basically. It's inappropriate. It's my, it's my response to it, and I work from that.
0: that's really interesting, Robin, and obviously it's it's quite fascinating to just hear how your very earliest work still informs the way you look at these problems, even if it's not always so explicit and foregrounded today. And it seems certainly that you were ahead of your time. Uh, You know, I know there's many lawyers who are arguing strongly now that legal status should be granted to, to, to other species, even waterways and trees. We'll see how they get on in another 20, 30 years.
1: They've done that in New Zealand already with the Whanganui River.
0: Oh really that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah wow. that's
1: got legal standing. Um, it's It means a lot to the Maori people and and it's also housing the biodiversity that's also culturally important to Maori people. So it's, it's kind of taking off in little places.
0: Mm, yeah. yeah and also you raised the crucial question I mean how do we actually deal with this politically and we've been doing a bit of work here on biodiversity, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity. Uh, and ecosystems and nature-based solutions which are now Mm. very popular in the in the policy discussion and I suppose draw on some ecological debates, some of those legacy discussions, but I suppose one question would be, is there a danger um, that as we sort of try and integrate some of that ecological understanding into conventional environmental policy that This anthropocentrism that you've mentioned uh, domesticates or tames or mainstreams the original uh, intention behind those policy initiatives?
1: Um, No, I don't see any real dangers there. I mean, I have no problem with pets and some domesticated animals. Um, Maybe it's the farmers, the farming background. Uh, I see the problem with meat and livestock. I certainly accept that, but I don't have a problem with, um, you know, backyard chickens or fishing thing, fish that aren't endangered and are plentiful or even growing carp or things like that. Um, it's more about, this because you can be on a vegan diet and still eat a lot of grains and plant foods that are not sustainably grown. I know a lot of vegans do care a great deal about that, but it's not about, it's the overall sustainability analysis that matters most. But I think nature-based solutions in urban and city areas is a great idea Like building little bee hotels and urban corridors. Um, If you think of the way roads crisscross across landscapes, providing little walkways under the road and over the road for animals is a great way of stopping them getting splattered on the road. Um, We had one at Mount Hotham in our Alpine area and it was called the Love Tunnel because the little critters going through there would often (laughs) It was a convenient place for them, but they they would then go under the road and not get hit. So it just, and just having them there is is almost in itself uh, an advertisement for people driving past, just to be attentive. Oh yeah, there are other critters here. It's not really putting us out much to give them right of way in, in a way that's safe for them. Um, so these ideas of uh, large corridors, large forest corridors, moving through farm areas and and the virtues of hedgerows, these are all fantastic. And they're educational and kids are natural, amateur naturalists, you know, they, and I think it's, um, it kind of gets beaten out of them as they get a little bit older. So I think all of these things are great. It's, um, it's not, wilderness is not some place out there. There's wild nature all around us and it's, it's adapting all around us and um, we see it. And funnily enough, the pandemic, has not only cleaned up the skies of many cities, but the quietness has brought a lot more critters into the urban environment. For those of us that have been on long lockdowns, like in here in Melbourne, we had a three month lockdown at one point. We were allowed out for an hour for a walk. people all around the city walking, no cars and bikes and a lot more critters to look at. It was was quite something.
0: I think that speaks to the real challenge that climate change poses in in that we think in these very macro abstract structural terms but obviously ultimately also the change has to happen at the most at the most micro the most personal level as well and your your research your current research is really pushing at sort of trying to bring the micro and the macro together and that's always the perhaps biggest challenge and also i think the other aspect of the challenge is understanding that um that healthy evolutionary pathways in innovation in a positive direction is is also saturated in risk systemic risk in uncertainty uh, and so we have to there has to be a certain tolerance of risk to 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 make, the leap. Although, as you suggest, perhaps we can think in more conjunctural, incremental steps. But nevertheless, there has to be a certain uh, tolerance that uh, that things may not turn out exactly as one expected. Oh
1: yeah. And, yeah.
0: and in in that sort of mindset, and thinking a little bit of sort of yes, the, the William Ophels, Lavathan, or, or, or Oblivion, as a kind of a, a default dystopian outcome. How how would you suggest we grapple with the implications of scarcity in politics seriously while keeping open the possibility of alternative, healthier futures?
1: Well, insofar as we encounter scarcity, and insofar as we have growing inequality, it's going to get really ugly. So that's why we need to address the scourge of inequality. Um, and there's, this is where the welfare state remains the best model we have. Uh, and this is the reason I remain a, a, you know, a, a revisionist in trying to rescue the state rather than turn my back on it because it's the only institution with the power of law and taxation that can actually redistribute. And also, um, not only redistribute to, to give every child the right opportunity, the same opportunity. Every new child born can have a new opportunity despite the circumstances of their birth. Also, um, also be able to deal with the just transition. So we think of just transition as, you know, dealing with affected coal communities, but there's transition challenges right across the board and anticipating that planning that getting community involvement is essential for the legitimacy of those transitions, Because they backfire, what you need is to have a few good model transition projects, where you show you show it working, and then you see how we can start scaling this up in other industry areas. Um, because there's nothing like success and practical demonstration politically. Um, but I just want to it's not quite answering your question, I want to get back to Zoe's question about political theory and non-ideal political theory and politics. The climate emergency movement is trying to wake us up to this decade. It's using a frame that political theorists have found deeply problematic. Um, although Carl Schmitt, not necessarily, but um, certainly most political theorists and theorists of securitization really don't like the securitization move or emergency. but. I've been gathering all the stuff written by political theorists on this, and it has no connection with the climate commis- emergency movement because this is all directed at the state. And these ideas are coming from a movement. They're not coming from the state, right? So that seems to me a very big difference. And not only that, some of their claims and calls are coming up with climate relevant democratic innovations, um, uh, which are relevant to helping with the transition. I think of the French citizens assembly Um, the British Citizens Assembly, I think there was an Irish one, Uh, the French one, quite interesting. So they're adding another layer to the policymaking process and and widening the discussion, they're having an educative effect. So political theorists that just draw on their knee-jerk response to the word emergency, (gasps) exceptional measures, suspension of debate, all these things. Now, there are dangers there. One must watch out for them. But at the other hand, one emergencies don't all mean the same thing right and a near and present danger needs a chain of command and you have the debate afterwards and then next time round you change the way you do it so democracy is just temporarily suspended for a short period because otherwise people will die but when you've got a long turnaround time you cannot suspend democracy and there's no need to so no one's suggesting it should be suspended. So they're not actually listening or watching what the movement's doing. That's not to say there aren't some dangers, but, but I've looked at some of the climate emergency bills. Now that that would be that they would then become mechanisms for the state to exercise emergency powers. And so far I can see a few issues there, but overall the political theater, those that are like Mike Hume, for example, have written essays He's not actually study the movement. <laughs> Does you need to be, that's why I think political theorists need to get their hands dirty, they need to do empirical research, they need to interact and observe with movements, interact with them, work out workshops, get them to talk about their climate imaginary, how they see democracy fitting in, and understand it first, and then bring to bear the tools of political theory to see to what extent they still have purchased, rather than just condemning it without. So, sorry, that's why just remaining in the of political theory means you don't actually always see properly what's happening on the ground.
0: Yeah, I think that's very helpful and something again that we've been exploring is the importance of bringing different disciplinary vantage points to these questions, Absolutely, seems yeah. absolutely crucial. Uh, You know, for example, for me, just grappling with climate science as being an education, just trying to get my head around exponential function, for example, uh, is actually quite challenging. But once you actually really understand what that means, it clarifies quite a lot. And it also has serious implications for how we actually respond to an issue like climate change. And as you've written about the importance of, say, the precautionary principle, uh, in a context where you can only maybe run the experiment once, and in the context of exponential function, we need to be very careful because you, you, it's very hard to predict the the sort of the, the curves and the the, the the future states of the system. So we could, I'm sure, we could get into that for another hour, but I I can see time is of the essence, and we are rolling to a close. Uh, I would like to hand over to Zoe for the last question. Thanks, Zoe. So my final
2: question. I guess would be, um, as we move further into the 2020s, um, how do you think young people can be best equipped to face the risks and the uncertainties that are definitely, that are certainly coming our way um, without necessarily being overwhelmed or overtaken? And on a slightly more positive note, what gives you hope about uh, what potential futures could look like um, despite all the uncertainty and I guess? Wow,
1: question. I would say to young people um, whatever job career you choose make it your business to to uh, to be a positive deviant <laughs> as Sarah Parkin might put it or to to actually insist that climate change be brought into play that you know organize in that whatever it is and, and pretty much most most walks of life, you can start thinking about that. And um, that way you're part of the solution, part of the problem. You know, you can't go into a system where you know you're a cog in a wheel of a system that's actually perpetuating the very thing that you're deeply worried about. It's just too much cognitive dissonance there. So there's a lot of people that practice what um, Carrie Norgard called knowing but not knowing. They read. newspapers they understand this is a serious problem but their daily lives are such it's as if they do not know. We have to know and not and not not know (laughs) we have to use what we do in the daily life to to try and put our shoulder to the wall to make a difference and sometimes that may be small but at least you can know you're doing what you can with your competences with your particular training with your station in life and where you live you're doing something that is making a difference. It's more part of the solution than the problem. It can't be entirely because we're ensnared in a world with so many things which we can't quite escape. So ensnared is the word, so it's not your fault. But if you recognize that and are trying to become more of a solution than the problem, then it's definitely gonna make a difference. And as for hope, well, there's a difference between optimism and hope. And I'm not entirely optimistic, but I'm certainly hopeful because hope is the basis for change if you stop hoping for a future you'll stop acting for it and then it won't be the future you want and even if you do everything you can you can remain hopeful and it's not quite the future you wanted at least you you say well i'm not responsible for that i did everything i could to stop that happening so there's a sense in which hope is um, it is a kind of leap that you make with your mind that i'm just going to leap into this a kind of leap of faith as it were and just say, the odds are against us, but I'm gonna to work to change those odds. And the more people that do that, hey, presto, that's how politics works. And the beauty of politics is that it's, I mean, we're confounded by the fact that it's unpredictable, but we're also delighted by the fact that it's unpredictable. And political scientists are terrible at predicting, they didn't predict the end of the Cold War, they didn't predict the Arab Spring, they didn't predict hashtag me too, these things, it's just, they've come and they rise in this critical mass. We don't quite know what, what it is that gets us to that critical mass. All those that didn't know, now know and knew it all along, fine. So you just, things have happened. They can happen really fast, faster than you might even be able to imagine. So hang on to that hope. Good note on which to end.
0: <laughs> kind of an extraordinary moment, really. Uh, I think that's an excellent takeaway, make it your business to be a a positive deviant. I <laughs> I'll try and remember that myself. I attribute that
1: to Sarah Parkin, a good dear friend of mine who wrote a book by that name.
0: Oh, fantastic. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. I'll
1: give her a plug there.
0: <laughs> good, yeah. Um. Well, thanks so much, Robin, for for this fascinating conversation uh, and being willing to 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 go with us to range so widely over this rugged terrain i think it's been a really brilliant entry point into your work and also where that interface between political reality uh, theory uh, and and ecology where they come together and how they speak to one another so thanks thank you and uh, we look forward to to what comes next in your work on climate movements that sounds really exciting and um, wish you the very best in in uh, pushing that forward.
1: Well, thanks very much, Tom and, and Zoe. Um, I really enjoyed myself. It was great chatting with you.
0: Thanks for tuning into Global Governance Futures. To get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future Zoom calls, workshops and events and more, check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. And if you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. Until next time,